Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode is supported by Chimney Fire Coffee. Chimney Fire Coffee. Supporting ethical and eco-friendly practices. Chimney. All the way from farm to cup. Fire Coffee. They source their beans from El Salvador, Ethiopia, Peru and Brazil. Then they roast them in the Surrey Hills. In the nice bit between Guildford and Dorking. Jimmy. They work directly with farmers. Fire coffee. And they share their stories. Jimmy. Their packaging is fully compostable. Fire coffee. Listeners to Three in a Bar can get 20% off their first coffee order. Simply head to chimneyfirecoffee.com and use the code 3INNABAR at checkout. This is 3 in a Bar, a podcast where we are joined by a different musician every episode. I'm Seb Philpott. And I'm Verity Simmons. I play the trumpet. And I play the cello. Our guests could be from any part of the music world. We've spoken to pop stars, composers, orchestral musicians, singers, musical theatre performers and lots more. We chat about their careers, ambitions and get a glimpse into what makes each musician unique. Shall we sing the song? Oh, don't make me sing the song! Three, three in a bar! Hey, I tell you what, auto-tune is a wonderful thing. First round's on me. Are we gonna? Why don't we give them a formal start for a change? Or is that too much? We've moved away from that, haven't we? Yeah. Okay. No formality. No formalities here. Straight into. Good where we morning. Are. My name is Seb Philpot. <laughs> it's very presumptuous. <laughs> what, it's also six oh three here. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thrown already. I'm thrown. Um, oh hi everybody! Uh, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, are we doing this? Go on. Oh god, <laughs> that's so formal. We haven't done this in a while. I know we've forgotten how to do this part. Yeah. Um, well, look here we are, ready to introduce our next guest. We've got a proper one now, haven't we? We had a what lovely. What are you bonus. saying about our previous guest? I'm, I'm saying that midweek last week we gave them a little, well, it was like Barney's obviously a fantastic guest, but we didn't give it, it was like a full episode for him, was it? He no. was our tour guide. We did a bonus one. You might yeah. have listened to it of Barney Philpot, my brother, taking us around Chichester. He, he did a good job. He did a great tour job. Guiding. Yeah. He did say though, he didn't, he, he didn't want to be like a big, you know, he didn't want the pressure of being a proper guest. Yeah. Yeah. Where he's got to talk about his life and stuff, which is uh, is absolutely fine. It is. Although it'd but be great to get him back and do that at some on. point. Yeah. I'd love to know what who is who is I this bet guy? You, I bet you do. <laughs> um 
but yeah, we we uh, we walked around the town, the city actually. It's a city, isn't it? Yeah, it's got a cathedral, and uh, that's all it is that makes a city a city, isn't it? <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. we did that, and we saw some. There's a blue plaque. We, yeah. Uh, we saw some local street musicians. Yeah, we did. And we ended Dean up Dyson. In, Dean Dyson, and we ended up in a nice restaurant. You can listen to all that mm. if you go back one episode. It's the bonus one. Yeah. It's a it's a bit of fun. But this one. Yeah, this one. This is the real deal. Yeah, this is a, a genuine musical legend. It truly is. He's a legend. He, he's an uh, incredible orchestrator, arranger, composer, um, probably other things as well. Yeah, have we said who it... We haven't said his name we yet, have we? We said his name. <gasps> I was getting, it, getting to that. Oh, God. His big name up. is Doug Besterman. That's the name. That's right. <laughs> that's, that's certainly his name. <laughs> um, he's a legend. In fact, he's got, of course, a Wikipedia page. So I'm just going to to paraphrase. We're struggling with words a little bit today. So I'm going <laughs> to just give you, I'm going to give you, it's an extensive Wikipedia page. So I'm just going to give you the opening paragraph and then we'll, you know, fill from there. Yeah, yeah. So Douglas Besterman, born February the 3rd, 1965, is an American orchestrator, musical arranger and music producer. He's the recipient of three Tony Awards out of six total nominations and two Drama Desk Awards out of six total nominations and was a 2009 Grammy Award nominee. There you go. Wow. I mean, th- that, that, that puts it very well, actually. Yeah, <laughs> succinct, true. <laughs> <laughs> why can't we speak today i don't know it's been a long to... few weeks i've, I've basically yeah. i've been down ever since we saw doug a few weeks ago in chichester uh well verity's been down here doing the show <laughs> i've been on holiday night. haven't i and the show is we should say it's crazy for you mm. with uh which is it's a kind of would you call it a jukebox musical yeah but a, an early I mean, they've been around for ages, haven't they? Because like singing in the rain's a jukebox musical, isn't it? That's right. Yeah, I believe. Um, but it's it's George and Ira Gershwin uh, music and lyrics, and it's been formed into a show. And it's it, I mean, it first was on in 1992. That's I right, because it's the 20 year revival, isn't it? Oh right, that's no, that's not 20 <gasps> years. Oh my god, that's 30 years. 30 years. Oh how utterly depressing. Yeah, there we go. 30-year mm. revival. Wow, okay. And Doug, Doug, who we are chatting to, yeah. Doug is co-orchestrator of this production, yeah. along with Mark Cumberland. Mm. Um, they've reorchestrated from Bill... Bill Brown. William Brown. Yeah, it's his original. So he originally did it. Yeah. And um, we talk a lot about that. I think, uh, as, as Doug says, it's a very different beast when you're orchestrating from scratch or... Or in this case, as he says, reducing. Yeah. Because it's, it's a smaller number than than what they could have in the 90s. Things have changed since then. Mm. Uh, you know, everything always gets squeezed. As, Basically the as, string as, section, as you know, isn't string it? String section. <laughs> um, there's probably more computers involved with it now yeah. than, than there would have been. You know, synthetic sounds. I, know, I wonder about the checkout counter noise. Not oh, check- yeah, there is a checkout. Yeah, like, as there in, is. like, are you being served? <laughs> yes. How, would they have been able to do that back then? Oh, probably. Probably something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, we also chat to him because he's worked yeah. with so many legends. Uh, Mel Brooks. Yeah. Um, Mel Brooks, he, where he, he, he orchestrated The Producers. That's right. One of the greatest musicals, one of my favourites. Um, he uh, He's done so much stuff in theatre and film. 
um, he's currently uh, working in TV doing Schmigadoon. Yeah. Which you might have seen. It's a really funny sitcom, I suppose it's a yeah, sitcom, Yeah, I isn't think it? so. It's like a sort of parody musical kind of thing. Yeah. It's, it's so on, good. Uh, Disney Apple. Apple. Uh, Disney Apple. <laughs> <laughs> it's on Apple. <laughs> it is on Apple. Oh, it's all the same, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But he is associated with Disney as well, so I see the link. I mean, he's done a lot yeah, of well, Disney Yeah, well, he's done films. Disney too, nice. hasn't he? Nice so, segue. <laughs> um, yeah, he's worked with Alan Menken, you know, incredible composer, on such films as Pocahontas and Mulan. Where we are. And he co-arranged on a small show called Frozen. Oh, yeah. Um, Whatever happened to that? So we, we find out all about this uh, in our chat. He has also worked with Barbara Streisand. <laughs> And uh, we, yeah, we couldn't let that pass to talk about no. how that all came to be. He's also a big fan of wine. He's a big wine guy, just mm. like Verity is. Yeah. Am I a big wine guy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, Seb. <laughs> that's, that's what everyone's calling you here. <laughs> I thought I'd heard those mutterings. Um, um, yeah, we yeah. couldn't let that pass either, no, could we? No, no, no. Yeah. Uh, what, what else do we need to say? Nothing really. No, just just to say that we're going to drop in on this conversation. What might seem like a slightly strange point because we are sort of mid-conversation. We were chatting about comedy uh, and we sort of thought it's as good a place as any to drop in, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> you, you'll, you'll, pick, uh, you'll pick up where... Yeah, you'll get you'll, it. You'll, you'll, get, you'll get it. All right, <laughs> here we go. This is Doug Besterman. <laughs> I could deliver deliver a joke. You could do it, probably. Do you no. think? No. You, do you do it, Doug? No. no. <laughs> You're surrounded by a lot of comedy at times, though, in the work you do. Some funny, funny people. Sure. Yeah. Who I enjoy as an audience <laughs> well, Leave it to them. Right. right. Yeah. Leave the comedy to the experts. <laughs> you, you learn that working with you know like working with Mel Brooks. Just leave oh, the comedy alone. Don't touch God. it. Yeah. yeah. Oh well, well. Let's let's start there. I mean, what sure. Was it like? <laughs> well, are, are we on? We're on. We're on. We yeah, yeah, okay. We're going, we yeah. always do it by stealth. Okay. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. How was it working with, with Mel? Oh, it was wonderful. Mel Brooks is, you know, you're working with a professional comedy writer. And of course, Mel is also a unique character and, a, you know, and he's got that incredible voice. So mm. you hear him speak and you think, oh, that's Mel Brooks. And I remember being in elevators with him. And if the people in the elevator didn't notice immediately that they were in the elevator with Mel Brooks, he would start to speak. And then they, <laughs> it's Mel Brooks. Yeah. So he, he just has that unique voice. But that was... Um, the amazing thing about working with Mel was seeing how serious he was about the art of comedy writing and how just getting a laugh wasn't good enough. It had to be the right kind of laugh. Mm. And even when the producers was in previews in our first out of town, our only out of town, um, there'd be jokes that were getting great laughs and he'd say it's the wrong kind of joke and something else would go in the next night and something else would go in the next night. Wow. And it's also very collaborative. That was the other thing. I mean, if you think back to the sort of classic idea of a writer's room, you know, writers working together, he collaborated a lot with the performers in the show. Um, Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick and Roger Bart and Gary Beach, they all had input in the jokes. And any idea that somebody had would be considered it was never tossed out unless you were one of the musicians then mel would say just <laughs> leave it to the professionals <laughs> just stay over there same so, old story same yeah. right <laughs> but speaking of music he loved loves music and yeah. and was um 
just so thrilled to be able to do a musical with musicians. And he just loved when the band came in and he loved hearing us play and just was so appreciative of what the musicians did and, and how it sounded. And, and um, he really thinks of himself, I mean, he wrote all of those melodies, so yeah. he, he really thinks of himself as a musician um, and, and just was, I think, just tickled to be included in our number. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, he wrote the music, the lyrics and the book for that thing. Right. It's quite rare, Co- isn't Co-wrote it, for... the book. Oh, co-wrote the Music book. Yeah, and course, lyrics, yeah yeah. 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 And he did, there, there was a, 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 an arranger named Glenn Kelly who wrote everything down and created arrangements because Mel doesn't actually physically write music, but he sing, sang every tune. And then Glenn would say, do you mean something like this and play mm. an accompaniment? And Mel would say, oh, it needs to... And they would kind of work it out together. And, um, and you know, that's sort of how it was created, wow. you know, kind of one moment at a time Yeah, with Glenn at the piano. And this, I mean, I, I love that musical so much. I listen to it all the time when I, you know, when it came out, that's when I first heard your name. I think I saw it on the, on the, on the liner notes and uh, so I was like, oh, he's this guy. And you know, I sort of followed what you were doing. But, um, but those melodies, they're just so memorable. They're, they're classic yeah. tunes. They're, they're like they've been around for forever. It really fits into that yes. you know, early 20th century, mid, mid, whenever it's sort of set in the late 50s, isn't it? That It's that kind of, that real idiom of that. Of that yeah. yeah, it's the class, the golden age of yes. musicals. And Mel's an entertainer, you know, you have to think. So his goal is always to entertain. So it's no surprise that the music that he would write would be the most entertaining music, the most memorable, catchy you know, the music that was sort of the, the most memorable from that era is what inspired him. You know, he just has a sense of what's going to be entertaining to the public. So yeah. it's not, it wasn't a surprise to me to hear those tunes, you know. And of course, he always wrote the songs in all of his movies. Those, that was, of course, you know, yeah. High Anxiety, you know, those yeah. were all his songs. Yeah. So, and of course, Springtime for Hitler was yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That, that was yeah. in the original film, wasn't In the original it? film. Yeah. yeah the, I think that's the only song that was in the original. Yes. Yeah. It's the yeah. only song in there. I, well, I guess there was the one, the LSD character in the original oh, yeah. film has a song, Love Power, which we didn't do in the musical, but yeah, that was yeah, his yeah. also. Yeah. yeah. Wow. What sort of forces did you have to work with when you were, when you were orchestrating that? Oh, that was back in the day of <laughs> the big theater orchestra. So oh, I guess joys. it was 24, <laughs> you know, which is, which is, uh, at the time was kind of the standard size Broadway orchestra. Um, but if you really think about it, it's it's only the, because of the tradition of Broadway shows that that 24 was any kind of a standard number. What is 24 musicians? Yeah. You know, that's how many people fit down there. So that's, yeah. that's how many, you know, and, and through the ages, and, you know, we could talk a lot about the history of musical theater orchestras and that sort of thing. And I'm by no means an expert, but by the time I started orchestrating for Broadway in the 90s, 24 to 28 was kind of the number. Mm-hmm. And um, it was very important to Mel. And and so the producers was in 2001. So a few years later, there was a, a union negotiation in New York and all of the theater minimums, you know, there's a minimum number yeah. for each there and all of those were reduced. So, but this was prior to the reduction. So 24 would have been probably the minimum in that theater. And so that's what we went in with. And it was... 24 plus conductor probably. Um, Then just a few years later when we did Young Frankenstein, the minimum had been reduced. So it was probably 18 for a similar size theater. And Mel said, nope, we're having 24. Oh, really? He wouldn't do it with fewer. 
He wouldn't yeah. do it. Yeah, it was very important to him. And and um, so, but that was, you know, that was the number back in the day. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. probably one of the only people that they, they'd have to just go with. Like if, if he said he wants 24, when, if Mel Brooks says it, then well, yeah, you're going to have to go with it. Yeah, you know, that was the story that the producers told. And I love producers, hire me. Um, <laughs> so, but, you know, the, the story was always we whatever the creative team says and and they would say if Stephen Sondheim said we need a certain number of musicians well we'll have that number and i think you know that there's a, a spirit of of they'll look to the creators to see what's important but you also have to remember it's commercial theater so there's mm-hmm. a budget and there and musicians are expensive and they you know it's more people to employ on a weekly basis and that's a different budget than the cost of putting up the show and building the sets and costumes and so on. So those financial considerations are real. And um, so, uh, you know, there's arguments to be made on both sides. Yeah, so, sure. so really, in my experience, the producers say, this is what we can afford on this show. This is what, as we've looked at the budgeting and and so on, um, in terms of what we think, how we think we'll be able to keep the show open the longest yeah. and have a, a chance at a successful run. This is the number. And it's usually the minimum. It's rare that they'll go above. And if you can make a good case for going above, maybe you can get an extra one or two. But, yeah. but you know, usually you want to be, you know, game to, to, to really understand how the music fits into the overall budget. And it's a shame, you know, I, I wish that the budgets could, could, um, support 24 musicians for every show but they can't yeah. that's the reality so yeah. then when you come to something like this because we're lucky enough to have you because we're all down in chichester at the moment yes um, doing crazy for you um th- you're coming to reorchestrate something then and have to reduce forces yes that must throw up a number of problems shall we say <laughs> yeah well the original uh crazy for you i don't even know what the original number was it it was 25 at least, mm. um, there was a much larger string section than what we have in Chichester. Um, and that's typical for a show from that era. This was 91 or 92 that yeah. they would have orchestrated, that Bill Brown would have orchestrated the show. And um, five woodwinds, two French horns, two trumpets, two trombones, um, piano and keyboard, uh, bass, drums, uh, percussion. I don't know if I said that already. And... Um, and so that was a big orchestra. And then I think it was six violins and two cellos. So yeah. big, big group. And it made a beautiful sound. And Bill did use um, some, there was keyboard harp and some other sounds like that and, and some electronics in the percussion, but only to make acoustic sounds There were, yeah, and sound effects. There's, as, as you know, yeah. there's a lot of sound <laughs> effects in the show. We, we're making all kinds of noises. So um, then, of course, uh, years back when we first started talking about this revival, we have a producer um, who is was very interested in in having as big an orchestra as we could as as the current budgets and and costs could support. And so we settled on sixteen, which is really quite a generous number for a a theater pit now. yeah, and so with that we we had to subtract a little bit from each section, and we do have to augment the strings. So it was just a matter of, how to preserve the writing, Bill's writing, in such a way that uh, we could cover the instruments that are missing, and then, but still, you know, have the integrity of the original orchestrations and make a big sound. Yeah. And and you know, I think we were successful. I mean, I've been doing that since my summer stock days. You know, yeah. <laughs> when they gave me ten musicians and said, "Here's a you know whatever." Uh, <laughs> 
Sugar Babies or whatever show it was, <laughs> you know, which had a big orchestra. Um, yeah. Play it with 10, you know, and then I would sit in my room and figure out how to produce the reed parts or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. So what was like the first thing you think, well, we can get rid of that. That's that's not necessary. Or, or what's the most important? What's the basis? My pride. The- that's the first thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think... I think you look at, I mean, how, how geeky do we want to get? Do oh, we want to get, get really geeky? Full geek. Let's do it. Get really off. geeky, full, full geek. geek. Yeah. We'll go full, we'll pin the, into the red on the geek meter. <laughs> yes. So you want to look at having complete, being able to make complete chords in each section. That That's really what, what I think about. So um, because especially in a show, like for example, take the woodwind section, there's going to be a lot of sax writing. So you want at least three to be able to make chords and suggest the kind of harmony and there were i mean bill had five reads so he could make a full five part um jazz saxophone section and write properly um so you you look at that and then same thing with the brass we actually have four brass um two trumpets one trombone and one horn so but he always had two trumpets so so that we didn't we added to the trumpet book but we didn't have to subtract anything Mm. really and then, you know, looking at, well, you can cover some of the trombone parts with horn and, you know, there's, there'd be ways that you could make the complete chords and let each section play independently. Um, and then in the strings, we knew that with, again, with one on each part, you know, he had six violins, so he sometimes divided in three and in some places in six, literally everyone wow. had their own note, yeah. which was beautiful in the quieter sections, of course. And so, but we knew with three, we could cover, we could have, we could write independently for the three parts, and then we would have synth support to be able to get the richness. Um, but you hear quite a lot of the live strings, Verity, by the way. It sounds really lovely. <laughs> no, it sounds so beautiful. And and we also have a great sound designer, Kai Harada, who's oh, yeah. just amazing. And he really knows what an orchestra is supposed to sound lovely. like. Lovely. So it's really, and then it's, you know, and then, but for, for us, for Mark Cumberland and I, Mark's my co-orchestrator, um, it was a real, it was going to school on Bill Brown's orchestration yeah. ability. And it's, he's was just a marvelous writer. He's no longer with us, but, um, so we got an education in Bill Brown, which was really, really wonderful. And within the larger ensemble, he makes little ensembles. So it was a matter of trying to honor that as much as possible. And the one thing you lose when you reduce is you lose the ability to change colors quickly. That's why I, I call it turning on a dime. You, you lose the ability to turn on a dime. So if you have, Bill might in a particular place have three saxes up and then in the very next measure have a, an oboe and a bassoon playing mm. together for a completely different color. And that's really fun. Suddenly yeah. you're in a different musical world for a few measures and that might be something in the choreography or a musical joke or something like that. So those are the things that are much harder to do when you have a smaller group. You have to either you give up some of those color shifts or you lose something on either side of the shift or you have to rethink it. So, but I think we were able to get most, most everything is in there, you know, and it doesn't, you, you, we miss it. Um, Mark and I certainly miss, yeah. and anybody who really knows the original orchestrations might miss, but I don't think as a, as an audience member, you miss you feel like there's something missing in the orchestration. It, it doesn't, it's, it really sounds quite full. It does. And like you say there, I mean, 16, it does feel like a, and a varied sound, exactly that. You know, it's lovely. It, it, passing from a string sound to, well, there's a really 
clear bit for us where it, it's it starts off and it's just brass and then it's strings doing a similar thing and then the wind do this and it's yes. it's great and there's so much motion in the orchestration it's always moving you very it's very rare that you sit on a note you know you're yeah. always things are always weaving in and out of each other and it was i mean that's a really time-consuming, arduous way of writing. <laughs> like, I really <laughs> admire and respect Bill. He never took the easy way out anywhere. <laughs> he really he really didn't. And I'm very friendly with um, an orchestrator named Chris Yonke. Hi, Chris, if you're listening. <laughs> and um, he, he worked a lot with Bill over the years. And he tells stories, you know, about Bill's passion as a writer and orchestrator and how much it mattered to him yeah. to have every note have integrity. And you just see it on the page. You really do. Yeah. So this is a sort of different project when you're reorchestrating something, aren't you? Because you're, I mean, so much hard work has been done, and you're you're really just trying to make it fit for the for the forces you have. Right. And um, is it a very different thing when you're orchestrating something from scratch and, yes. and working and workshopping and all that? Absolutely. So on Crazy for You, it was really we were really doing a reduction of the original orchestration because there have been times where I've done revivals where I did reorchestrate, meaning we started from scratch or we used the piano, what we call the piano vocal, which is the the piano part that's played in rehearsal, which sometimes is a reduction of the orchestrations-ish, and sometimes it's not. But um, for the older musicals, it generally contains material that was, say, added by the orchestrator or the arrangers. So we might use that as our basis. So there'll be some similarities in counter lines and that sort of thing, but we're, we're not keeping any of the original orchestrations. I'm starting from scratch and writing new parts. With this, we had the original scores. We had we so we just moved things around and adjusted. So it was really a reduction with a little bit of new writing that needed to be done for the moments in this production where Susan Strum and the director choreographer felt she needed to make changes um, to the staging or to the dance arrangements. And David Crane's our dance arranger and has been the one who's been um, looking after that. So so that's even a different kind of assignment than a reorchestration. But what you're asking is a new orchestration. And yes, it's a very different, a very different process. There's different um, questions that you have to ask yourself before you start work. And then a, a really a, a, probably a more arduous process. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. it's, it's much easier to do, to reduce someone else's work. You know, you yes. can do it much quicker. <laughs> so, so how, I mean, so how would that process begin? I mean, it would begin with someone like Mel Brooks singing a melody. Right getting some music down with, with the help of someone else, maybe. Um, sure. Obviously, there are um, composers that would do all that themselves right. as well. Right, And then they, they would hand that to a music arranger? Would that be yeah. the way it would yeah. go? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. So so historically, I mean, you really have kind of two different kinds of composers. You have the composers who really write everything themselves. They write it all down. Every accompaniment comes from their mind. And they might even do vocal arrangements and dance arrangements. Um, that's one type of composer. And then there's kind of along a spectrum of composers who might write everything down, but not every arrangement. And then at the other end of the spectrum are the composers who can maybe play a little piano or guitar or something. Um, and then you have, you know, at the far end, the hummers, you know, who will <laughs> sing the melody yeah. into a tape recorder, or maybe they can play a little piano and they'll play it into a recording device of some kind. Um, and then somebody else needs to transcribe that material. So before you go into rehearsals, the music has to be written down. So someone's going to do it. Either 
either the composer or um, someone that's appointed by the composer or by a music team, the music will be transcribed into what we call the rehearsal piano part or the piano vocal. It has the piano part and the vocals. Um, vocal arrangements have to be written. Then dance music has to be written, which is the music that accompanies choreography that might use the themes that were written by the composer. And that could be an entirely different person um, mm. doing that work. It often is, generally speaking. Uh, vocal arrangements could be um, maybe the musical director does the vocal arrangements or there might be a vocal arranger that's brought in just for that purpose to write the vocals. Uh, harm, choral harmonies, you know, or if there's duet harmonies or trios or that sort of thing that needs to be written. And then there might be an arranger who then adapts the material in rehearsals. Maybe the composer's written an intro, but they need something twice as long or they need something much shorter or they need it to come, the intro to the song to come out of a scene or transition material, scene changes, um, underscoring under dialogue. All of that stuff has to be written by someone and that has to be written down. Because when it gets to the uh, orchestrator, we're the last person in the writing down of music chain, not counting the copyists who come after us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so we we and we're not in rehearsals generally. There's no time um, for us to be sitting in rehearsals all day and then going home at night and orchestrating. That doesn't work. We have to work. We we don't even usually start getting the material until rehearsals start. Wow. Because the routines aren't set. What key is this in? How, how long is the intro? Sometimes you can orchestrate a little bit ahead if it's if there's been a number of workshops and that sort of thing. You'll know there are numbers that they refer to them as like set pieces. So it's um, you, you, the actor stands still on stage, not stand still, but spotlight in the center of the stage, sings the song, and it's over. That's probably not going to change. So you take the risk maybe orchestrating it ahead of rehearsals. And then if you need to adjust an intro or an ending or change the key, you can do that. So we're working very fast. The average rehearsal period is four to six weeks. Then um, that might include the tech rehearsals, or maybe there's tech after that. And um, then, you know, we're expected to have the majority of the show written by then. So on a, on a new show, um, the music will come to us having been through that rehearsal process. Arrangers have put their stamp on it. And that gives us hopefully an indication of what the accompaniments should be if the yeah. arrangers have done their job. Um, now, of course, you have all skill levels of arrangers too. So sometimes <laughs> they've done a job. You know? <laughs> it's helpful for rehearsals, but it might be, and again, it depends on the type of music, but you might have a rehearsal part that's really a piano part. And if it's like a rhythm type of song, it's kind of the rhythm part. This is how the rhythm goes. Well, what's the rest of the orchestra going to play? You know, mm. so then then we we're really very much co-arrangers, and we generally speaking are. We have discretion as orchestrators to change counterlines or even in dance music change keys, add figures, whatever we need to do um, at our discretion. And discretion is the key word. Yeah. You know? What's the trust level between the orchestrator and the composer or the rest of the music team? And you kind of go from there. So, what would you say is the most important relationship in amongst that team? Who would you say? Is it the composer that you need to have, or the arranger? Yeah, you you have to know you have to know who you're working for, right? Exactly, and that's that's a lesson that I think people <laughs> learn the hard way, me included. Um, you know, you have a boss, so who's your boss? Yeah, usually it's the composer. You know, 
but does the composer have a boss? <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> maybe yes, maybe no. Stephen Sondheim, probably not. Although, you know, they composers. It's a collaborative medium, so um, ultimately, it's it's a uh, it's an author's medium theater. So the authors will, in the end, have the final say. The director and producers and so on are all very respectful of the author's work. Yeah. Um, but there might be at a certain point, particularly if a show is having a rocky start, the producers might insist on something. So, but generally speaking, for me in theater it's the composer. That's right. why I've got to please. At least that's the first level of approval. If you think about it, you know, who am I, do I need approvals from? So that right. would be the first level would be the composer. And then the director and choreographer for their, for the material that really is of importance to them. And then, you know, sometimes the producers, you know, mm. they'll say, oh, we thought this was going to be, we thought that ballad you wrote was going to be in a punk rock style. Really? <laughs> Nobody knew that, you know. Okay. <laughs> Back to the drawing board. You'd think I'm kidding, but. <laughs> <laughs> so it sounds like you've got a very intense four to six weeks when you yes. when you get that. And does it come as a piano vocal score often? Yes. And then you've got to then give it to what 24 musicians whatever or whatever, it is whatever it is yeah. so it's a lot of a lot of lines to write out a lot right. of songs right to like two two and a half hours of music or so yeah it's um the average length of a broadway musical now i would say is somewhere between 3 and 4000 measures so that's um between, you know it's could be a thousand pages what we call pages so then mm. a four bar page it's just a unit of measure and orchestrating mm. so it's a lot of music to write in four yeah. weeks you know <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of material and do you um ever work in a team or is it is it just you generally yeah usually they'll hire an individual to orchestrate although you see teams being hired more often now um and then uh we're a pretty collegial group so if you need help if you were just running out of time and or sometimes it's just schedule um particularly on a new show the dance routines might not be completely settled until the last week and now you've got eight or nine or a thousand nine hundred or a thousand measures of dance music and so on to do in a few days and so sometimes you just call for help you know you get your colleagues to come in or a colleague um on this mark cumberland and i just decided we would just share it you know, yeah. share the workload. It's much easier. There's almost 4,000 bars of music in this show. It's a lot of dance music. So we thought it'll be easier just to do 2,000 <laughs> each, you know. Right. Is that what you did? Did you literally just split it in yeah. half? Yeah, as the assignments came in from Alan Williams, our musical director, um, whoever was free would just take the next one. So, oh, okay. And then we, keep, we kept a spreadsheet with a running total of how much each of us had done and what the percentage was of the total. So we knew, Ooh. all right, we're, we've done 38%. And Doug, you're 100 measures ahead. And there <laughs> oh, was literally good. one day where Mark called me and said, Look at the spreadsheet, and we were. It was exactly. We had each done a thousand fifty-one measures oh. or something. It was exactly the same. <laughs> Did you immediately get back? Right. No, I'm I, don't, I gotta get ahead of Just you. Yeah. One more measure. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. And do you see sort of stylus? I mean, playing it, it see it absolutely works seamlessly. But when you were in the process of orchestrating it. Did you come back together and were there stylistic differences in what you were doing? Mark and, and I? Mean, yeah. No, I think, I mean, Mark's a fantastic orchestrator. If, if your listeners don't know about Mark Cumberland, we'll all be working for, it'll be Mark Cumberland's world soon. We'll be working <laughs> for him, all of us. He's just an amazing orchestrator. He's done um, the Olivier's and, mm. and just uh, has done a, a lot of work. And he and I have worked together a number of times. Um, so I think... 
Um, and we've done these kind of reductions before together. Right. So I think we just knew what had to be done. And again, we're work, we were working with Bill Brown's material. We weren't creating from scratch. I, I think if we were working on a new show, we would have had to have a lot more conversation initially about what how we were going to handle things and what the sound was going to be, what the influences are, what styles we're, we're you know, going for, that sort of thing. Very often there's there are models that you can use um, unless a composer is doing something very contemporary and in a completely new style or something very idiosyncratic. They have influences, and so that's a way of understanding what they're looking for is to find out what their influences are. Yeah. And then you can kind of listen to that and say, oh, this will probably get us close to what they want. Yeah. But in this case, we just had Bill's work. And then when it came time to write the new material, it was just getting in and out of Bill's what Bill had done into the new material. And um, it seemed pretty obvious to us what needed to be done. So, and I, I think it's pretty seamless. I, I think if the, yeah, our totally. names weren't at the bottom of the page, you probably wouldn't know who did what. No, absolutely. And are you doing this on your, on a computer, the Sibelius yep. finale? Finale, yeah. yeah. For this Broadway, the, the American Broadway scene tends to be mostly finale. It would just the Broadway community adopted Finale early on before Sibelius was as mature a program as it is now. And then there were certain features that Sibelius didn't have until later. Now they're very much um, both very usable for uh, theater. And um, it's probably getting closer to evenly split between Sibelius and Finale. I've never done, no, that's not true. I actually did do a show in Sibelius, a, but it was a European tour of something um, in 2021. And um, But I'm a recent um, convert to Sibelius. I mean, I, I can do both, um, but I'm mostly finale and have yeah. been since I, I switched from hand copying to computer, hand orchestrating to computer orchestrating in the mid 2000s. So by 20, by 2006, I probably was fully on computer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when you were doing hand copying, were you just hearing the sounds in your head and just how, yeah. how would you yeah, yeah. envisage what what was gonna what it's gonna sound like? Yeah, I would be hearing the sounds sound in my head, I, it, and yeah. that is something that's nice about finales. You can kind of get instant feedback. Um, it's I'm glad I had the experience of writing by hand first mm. because it keeps me from relying too heavily on what I'm hearing from finale because it's not accurate in terms of what the music will sound like in the real world. But one thing it has helped me with is being more more accurate in terms of note mistakes right. because I can hear them played back mm. if I make a mistake. And it's always just accidentals. You know, you leave out a double sharp or whatever. So um, it, so that, that's that been a very big difference is, um, you know, being closer to 100% accurate. And time, surely, as well. I mean, was that incredibly time-consuming? Uh, right, yeah. I mean, there are certainly things that are easier than writing by hand. Keyboard parts, much easier. Yeah. But then there are things that are a little harder. Guitar parts, drum parts are a little harder. They take a little... I could write a guitar part much faster by hand or a drum right. part much faster by hand. But it, it's a good trade-off, you know? Yeah. And then, of course, you can... If you write an oboe solo and you decide, oh, that really should have been on violin, you just copy it. Whereas oh, before, you had to erase <laughs> it or get a new yeah. piece of paper and... <laughs> relay out the page and you know so there's a lot of we've it's much it's a huge time saver i've yeah. become definitely quicker since i switched yeah what's your um background in terms of instrument did you learn an instrument growing up That's what yeah um uh, piano was my first instrument mm -hmm. but then um when i was in elementary school i wanted to play in band and so i took up the french horn oh, so i was a yes. horn player and then i played horn all through um 
high school. And then um, I went to conservatory as a, well, horn was my major instrument. I wasn't a horn major. I was a history and theory major, which was the closest thing I could come up with to be an arranging student because there wasn't an arrangement major anywhere. Um, so, but I played horn and I went to Eastman. So I played horn and yeah. orchestra and, and um, wind ensemble and I miss it. I don't even own a horn anymore, but oh. but I can still do the fingerings. Oh. I bet um, that was a darn good ensemble, wasn't it? Oh, it was wonderful. I, 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 I dream about it still. Yeah. You know what it's like oh. to play an orchestra, you know, the repertoire. And, and um, so I think, you know, as an orchestrator, I think I had the privilege of sitting you know the horn. It's like the cello. You know the horns in the inside of the harmony. You're you're really you, you sit kind of. You, you're not. You're, you're the hero, but in a different way than the than the first violins. Yes. You know, or the, yes. or the you know lead woodwinds. You know you're you. You get to do both. You know you're both accompaniment and kind of middle ground, and then every now and then you get to step out as the yeah. as the heroic. You know. My horn teacher would make me do the heroic stance as a horn player. Sorry, I know we're on a podcast. You can't see me do it, but imagine like standing up with a horn, <laughs> my feet firmly planted. Um, so yeah, that that was my background. Fab. Well, now you get to write some great horn lines. Though. Oh, I do. Mm. Yeah, I live vicariously through yeah. the, the play, horn players who play those parts. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's some lovely horn parts coming through. This one's gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So were you studying orchestrating when you were at Eastman? Yes. Was that a, like a side, not a side, what do you call it, like a, a, an elective or something? Was that yeah, part of yeah. your... Yeah, yeah. Well, my program, one of the reasons I wanted to do this particular program was it gave me a lot of flexibility in terms of being able to choose electives. And so I basically did, in addition to my required coursework, I was able to do seven out of eight semesters in what's called the Jazz and Contemporary Media Department at Eastman. Um, and so I I was able to go through the whole undergraduate arranging program, which was essentially big band oriented. Um, but then as you got into a higher level, you could write for something called studio orchestra, which was essentially a big band with strings and extra, and French horns, some extra woodwinds and percussion. So studio orchestra, like what you'd have on a Tony Bennett album kind of yeah. thing, you know, you think mm. of it that way or a Michael Buble album, which was extremely useful because that's when I write for big ensembles, that's kind of the kind of ensemble I'm writing for. Less so much big band, although if I need to write big band, I was trained in it. So I know how, but I had a great teacher. There was a man there named Rayburn Wright who had really started that program in the late sixties and um, he died in the mid eighties, but, but I got to do all four years with him and, um, I wouldn't say he was a mentor to me specifically, but he was kind of a mentor to all of us in that program. Yeah. He was, he had had a lot of experience as a commercial arranger in New York specifically. And um, he also taught film scoring. Um, and now there's actually a film scoring, almost like a f film scoring school at Eastman. It's a separate department that teaches uh, 
uh, I guess, a master's program and uh, graduate program in film scoring there. But um, at the time that I was there, there was just a, there were a few courses, you know, instead of like a whole program. Yeah. Mm. Well, you must have been right in the 60s and that writing. I mean, every day there would have been jingles to write. And all, well, just when, all when Ray, yeah, in Ray's and, world, yes, yes. He was, it was an everyday thing. He was the chief arranger at Radio City Musical. Wow. Oh, and, wow. And I guess there were more shows there. Now it's just the Christmas show, but... Um, I don't know exactly which era he was in there, but I think there was a, at one point there was an orchestra that played in between the movies or there'd be a live show. So mm. he may have been part of that era, but there's still arrangements there with his name on it. Apparently I haven't seen their library, but I've been told. Yeah. And, um, but so he came from that world and, and I remember him playing us a jingle that he had written and telling a story about what it was like to work for this particular jingle agency and what they asked for and how they asked for it. And it was so illuminating because yeah. it's so much like what we do. Someone humming something and calling him <laughs> at midnight and are you sure it's going to sound like that? Okay, <laughs> don't worry, it will. And then, you know, them being luckily very pleased with how it turned out. Yes. <laughs> um, so you were talking about films just now and film school. But, um, when you're scoring, uh, orchestrating for a film, they're again a completely different ball game because I guess the forces you have are yes limitless. <laughs> well, it's, yeah, well, I wouldn't say limitless. Not sixty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're certainly much bigger. They're certainly much bigger. I mean, you know, I'm fortunate enough that sometimes I'll do a project and they'll say, "Well, we don't, we can't have a big orchestra on this one." We can do 60 and that's it, you know. I'll say, well, yeah. you know, 60, we'll oh. make it work. Secretly, I'm going, yay, 60. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a very different process yeah. in film. I mean, the writing isn't that different. I mean, obviously, you have bigger forces, so you're writing for a different type of ensemble. But, the, the, um, but who you're working for is different in film. Mm. Film is a director's medium, so that's the boss. The director's the boss. In TV, um, it... It's a little different. I, I work on the TV show Schmigadoon, which some of your listeners might be familiar with. We watched, we just watched them just now, actually. We just watched the first show before, oh, great. before this. Great, yeah. Fantastic. Absolutely loved it. Absolutely loved Thank it. you. So we're working on season two now. But so that show, um, the the composer and lyricist, um, Cinco Paul, is also the showrunner. So the showrunner is really the boss. That's the that's the the head, you know, he, the buck stops there. That's the person who, who makes most of the creative decisions. And Cinco's amazing. I mean, I could do, we could do a whole show on Cinco. Mm -hmm. um, but he's, um, so he's the one that we, we look, you know, we need approvals from Cinco, but he's wonderful. You know, he's so communicative and collaborative and his, he's such a great musician and he's very forthcoming with, these are my inspirations. These are the models. And um, so we just have so much fun working on that show. And even when we don't get it exactly right, we have fun missing the mark because yes. he'll say, oh, I see what you did there, but I was really thinking it would be this instead. But then we'll have this appreciation moment of why it was so fun to go in that direction. But nope, needs to be something else. And so, um, but in film, very often, that's who you're, that's who you're getting your approval from. Mm. I have a colleague who calls it getting to yes. So you're getting to yes <laughs> from the director. And it's important to know that. And so, and that's a whole, could be really a whole conversation with how do you work with a director who has very specific musical needs, hmm. which many do, especially in the types of projects that I do, which are musicals, but maybe doesn't speak the language of music, you know, the way we do as trained musicians 
doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter how he says it. He could or she could say it needs to be more yellow, and you're just gonna have to figure out how what yellow is in the <laughs> music. You know. Oh yeah. yes. Um, and you know, I use that as a silly mm. example, but you know, I've had directors say all kinds of crazy things to me. You know, <laughs> do I take them literally or not? It depends on the person. You know. Um, so, but you know, you're trying to get at what the gist of it is that they're asking for. And, and, um, that's, you know, it's good communication. It's just being a good communicator, good collaborator. And particularly when you're having a harder time getting to the solution, it's just trying to be really curious about what are they looking for, you know? And because eventually you or someone else, (laughs) if they move on to another person are going to have to get to that solution, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And again, you might have a very short amount of time to get get this stuff done, right? Yeah, and it's very, especially in film, it's very expensive to not get the solution right away Mm. because of the size of the ensembles and the cost of the recording studios and that sort of thing. So you really want to to not have to redo something. And I've had plenty of, you know, successes where it's the first read-through, you make a few changes and it gets recorded. And then I've certainly had times where the director has said, nope, that's not it. And then you try to do what you can. Maybe you try to fix it on the stands or maybe you have to go away and rewrite. But sometimes that's the only way to get there. The director yeah. couldn't really articulate what they wanted until they heard what they don't want. You mm. know? So it happens to everyone. So, if you, you know, you've got a short amount of time. Would you, would you just sort of go with your first thought? Like if you do a one pass through and say, right, we'll do start with the strings there, blah, 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 and just, just see, see if that works. And or you've probably got to a point in your, your career where you're pretty good at getting it right first time or do you try and do things a few different ways? Well, there's not much time for experimentation. So, you know, so you you have what a colleague of mine calls a bag of tricks. So you you know what's going to work, right? And, but you're, as a, an artist and an, as a musician, you know, I'm always influenced by the things that I hear and by my colleagues who I love and admire and I get to see their scores. I'm very fortunate if I'm on a project with other orchestrators, I can see how they've solved similar musical problems. So, you know, you'll look at something and say, oh, I'm going to do that the next time. I'm going to steal that trick, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and you'll put that. But, you know, you want to use those things sparingly until you feel really confident that you know what you're doing with them. You know, it's like... I don't want to say like a loaded weapon, but I, you know what I mean. It's a terrible analogy, <laughs> yeah, you especially right now. But you know, like you, you want to, um, you know, obviously go with what you know. Um, and um, how do I make a decision about a particular to use a particular technique? It's just taste and experience, I guess. I've done it enough. You know, at the beginning, it was so painful. Every decision was so terrifying. And even if I thought I knew how it would sound, well, what if it didn't sound that way? And even now, you know, I'm my own worst critic. So I'll hear something and I'll say, that's terrible. Why did it, what did I think? What was I thinking? The balance is all wrong. And then everyone will say, oh, that's marvelous. You know, it's like, are you kidding me? It's- <laughs> so, so, you know, I, but, but that's how you learn. And you, you know, kind of want to, I try to do it better every new assignment that I have. But I, I couldn't tell you how I make the decisions that I make. That's the kind of magical part of what we do is you just kind of get into a zone where it just happens through you know, that mystical thing that happens when yeah. you're a musician and you just find yourself suddenly doing it and then suddenly you've done it and there it is on the page for me and um, I go off and have dinner, you know. <laughs> um, but um, th- that's the, you know, that's the sort of thrill of it, but it's also the challenge of it um, is um, to, to ha- 
how do you get the experience to be able to get to that point where you have the confidence to write? Yeah, so I you mean, have to- was there a point? Would you say that you can pinpoint uh, a show or a film or, that you did and you think, and you suddenly felt like, okay, I feel calm about this now that I've because, like you say, it must have been incredibly I'll, stressful. I'll let you know as soon as that happens. <laughs> <laughs> any day now. On your now. way there. <laughs> any, any day now. And I have colleagues that say the same thing. I won't mention any names. We have this conversation all the time. I, I don't feel confident in anything I do. No, I think I think there's, you know, I've been doing, I've been orchestrating for 30 years. It's 30 years this year since I had really since my, you were fir- my kind of, school, John. exactly. Yeah. When, since I've had, since I had, I guess what you, I would think of as sort of my breakthrough dr- job as an orchestrator, where I worked for a very well-known composer on a little off-Broadway show, but it was in the spring of 1992. So it's 30 years this year. And um, so it took me a decade until I started to feel like I was confident that what I was going to, what I was putting on the page would be acceptable yeah. and sound good. And then also um, that I I had become more comfortable with the workload and working under pressure. That was very hard at the beginning, yeah. just how much work there was and the intensity of it and the pressure and the fear that you feel of the deadline. And just, that was really hard, but I'm, I'm much more comfortable with that now. Um, and, um, so yeah, it was a, a good 10 years in yeah. the early 2000s. I think I started to felt, feel a little more comfortable. Yeah. What was the first sort of thing you did? Was it meeting Alamenken? Yeah, there? that was, I mean, I had done some ghost writing for other orchestrators right. and I, and I'd also done some little off Broadway kind of things. Um, but yeah, I had, um, worked with Danny Trube, who was orchestrating yeah. for Alan and we had done, um, it was a crazy project. It was a theme park in Seoul, Korea. And Danny was hired as the orchestrator and we had a Japanese studio orchestra, 45 musicians or something like that. And it was music from the Broadway canon and that, and he wrote the dance range. Danny's an incredible musician and he's a great dance arranger. And so he had written all this really complicated music and I was hired as the pianist and I was really bad. I was just a terrible rehearsal pianist, but I, I, was really, you know, very enthusiastic. And I think they <laughs> forgave me in the end. I got better. Um, but um, they needed help. You know, Danny needed help. And so when I was first hired, I had my little, this was in the late 80s, so I had my little cassette tape of my orchestrations from college. And I, when I got hired, I gave the person who hired me a cassette and said, you know, I also orchestrate if you need help with anything. And so they did. So Danny gave me something to orchestrate, which I did. And then he gave me another number to orchestrate and I did and then we did another show together and I did a couple of charts for that for him and um that was it uh until literally one morning in the spring of 1992 my phone rang and at the other end was Alan Menken and he said hi this is Alan Menken Danny said to call you I have this project and all my regular orchestrators are busy and he said you'd probably be right for it do you want to come up to my house and meet me and at first I thought it was a joke you know (laughs) really but that's how I got the job I went up and met Alan it was a little four-piece orchestration two keyboards bass I guess and drums two keyboards bass and drums that's what it was Mm. and um you know, I just wrote these crazy keyboard parts and it was a little off-Broadway show called Weird Romance. But then it got recorded, which was really fun. There's, it's out there somewhere. And um, then I started working with Alan. And the next job he gave me was immediately following that. So this was the summer of 1992. He was writing a documentary. He was writing the music for a documentary on Abraham Lincoln. Oh, wow. A huge, you know, multi-part 
um, very well done documentary. And he said, um, oh, no, I'll get to hear your big orchestra stuff. But it turned out what he needed was there was about 24, 25 minutes of music that he just ran out of time to actually score those cues. And so he said, look, can you take my themes and can you basically adapt them to fit these? And I was, let's see, this was 1992. So I was 27. I cried myself to sleep every night. I was so terrified. I was so terrified, but I went and I did that for him. And I, when he said, oh, now I'll get to hear your big orchestra work, I thought, hmm, what big orchestra work? <laughs> like I'm, I'm, other than school, I've never written for a big orchestra. Yeah. But, you know, you just, I just convinced myself that I could do it. Somehow. Yeah, good. Fake it till you make it. So. Quite, quite right. I made a lot. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes, but, but it sounded okay in the end. Everybody's happy enough with it. So. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you work on Pocahontas? I did just a few little cues for Pocahontas. Yeah, yeah, I helped Danny in the end. I just did it. But one of them made it to the album, which was really fun. Um, so, yeah, a little help on I didn't, I didn't do Aladdin. My first Disney film that I did myself was Mulan. And that oh. didn't involve Alan at all. Wow. And, and, they, and even then, they, there were other song, or, song orchestrators. But I was kind of the one that was with the project day to day as they as songs got demoed and then some thrown out and changes were made and cuts were made and that sort of thing. So that was a process of a year or so yeah. that I was on that film. Yeah. So when you're doing things like uh, the Disney films, I know you did some work on Frozen as well, that little oh, tiny, yes, tiny little thing. <laughs> yeah. um, do you feel like when, before, when they call you up and say, could you do this, do you already perhaps have in mind things like, well, they're going to want it to be like this. This is a kind of standard orchestration. Do you... Are yeah, things I working? I, I, I think I think again, you know, I try to find out as much information about the project as possible. I think, you know, it's interesting because and you, you mentioned Frozen. So Frozen, that was I, I wasn't on that film. Um, that, that was it was just one song. It was this little song called um, Let It Go, I think it was called. Tiny. And, Nobody um, ever heard of that again. Right, exactly. So um, and, and that was that song ended up being kind of a group effort in the end. Right. Um, there were sort of multiple arrangers on it. But what happened was uh, I had wor- been working for Disney since 1995. So this was, I don't remember what year it was, 2012 or 13 or mm. somewhere in there. And I got a phone call from the folks at Disney that I know. And they said, we're working on this film based on this Snow Queen story. It's called Frozen. And we have a song and we're just not getting it through the approval process. And a couple of people have taken a crack at it. And we're not really sure what it needs, but would you... Would you take a look at it? Sure, I'm happy to help out. So then I said, well, what's the movie about? <laughs> you don't need to know that. Well, what's the what's the musical style? Oh, you'll hear it. You'll know what it is. <laughs> Nothing against the people. I, I don't, and it probably wasn't exactly that conversation, but that's my memory of it was I had very little information about what this song was, what it was going to look like. I'm not even sure I knew what the story of the song was. So I kind of imagined something. and But what I did have was other demos that had been made of the song. So I kind of knew the direction they were going, and I kind of knew what wasn't working. And it was all very subtle. You know, you have to understand on these things. It's There's somebody saying yes or no who doesn't know exactly what they want, but they know what they're not hearing. So... And the other people who had worked on this before me were really a really great arranger. So I was trying to figure out, well, how could I just help this thing get to yes? So I came in and I did my thing on it and that kind of pushed it over the hump. And in the end, they went back and, well, we'll take the intro from this version and then we'll kind of combine it with that. And so it was a little bit of a hybrid, but mm-hmm. but I did, I, I would say I, I do have a, a pretty big stamp on that song. Oh, come on. What's, what's, um, what's your thing then? Yeah, what, what, did you, what did you add to it? <laughs> 
Can you oh, remember? Oh gosh. That? Well, I changed the drum groove. That was a big thing. Wow. Um, some someday we'll have to. If anybody's interested, we'll have to do a talk with with um, with Bobby Lopez about this because I saw Bobby yeah. a few years later, and I, I did a film with Bobby and Kristen before Frozen, a Winnie the Pooh movie. But then we've you know they've been working with other amazing orchestrators and arrangers, so I don't see them very often. But I saw Bobby just at an opening of a show that he came to see that I'd been working on, and he said you know, you did a lot on Let It Go. I think a lot of that was you, wasn't it? And I was like, thank you for saying that because that's my memory too, you know? So I think I changed the groove a little bit. There was something that had been maybe on a, a I don't know, it was on a downbeat that I put on an upbeat. And I remember Bobby saying, oh, I have to get used to this, but I think I like it. And then, you know, some choices. And then there's a, the kind of big instrumental break with all the malady stuff that goes on. Hmm. And that that was just me throwing the kitchen sink at it. I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, this takes place in the mountains and I'm going to put Himalayan drum loops. And I just kind of went crazy. Yes. And so a lot of that ended up in there. And it was all loops that I had, uh, libraries that I had and different things that I had. Um, and I think in certain ways, I, there were things that I was trying to do that pushed it even a little more kind of electronic pop. And they backed off from that a little Um you know, it was cool sounds, but I think, again, I didn't know how the song fit in with the rest of the movie or what the, even the other song sounded like. So I was really just trying things. And so that was, there was a little bit of a process of, oh no, that shouldn't, that probably needs to be something less electronic and try something else and, you know, whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are my memories of something that was at least a decade ago, so... Wow. It's incredible, it's, isn't it? It's it's like the, the life that song has had now. now well, we didn't know it was going to be that show. big. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but here's what's funny is when I heard the song, it was a very, it was a, an early demo, obviously, and it was, was not yet the final vocal, although it was Adina Menzel. And I'm not even sure it was the final key, although I, th I think it was. I think at that point they had brought her back in and changed the key or something. You know, these things really go through a process. And I remember listening to the song and thinking, this is a really good song. Yeah. This is a really good song. And I, I think I played it for my kids. Um, they were, one of, my son was a teenager at that point and he was very interested in producing an electric. And I said, I had wanted to do this kind of synth texture at the top of the piece, which one of the other orchestrators had tried. And so I was going to do my version of it. And I said to my son, do you want to help me with this? You know, and he said, oh, I'm too scared. You know, I don't, I don't know enough to do <laughs> Sorry, Max, but that is what you said. And, um, and, but he was just a kid, you know. And, and so, um, but we all agreed, this is a really cool song. Like, yeah. You know, but none of us knew it was going to be Let It Go, you know. <laughs> but you don't know. How do you know? how the public's going to react to something. Yeah. I know, it's weird sometimes. Right? You get no yeah. rhyme nor reason, is that? So. Right. It's, right. Yeah, I guess it, it sort of stems from what eight-year-old girls love. I mean, I don't know if that's the, <laughs> right. tar the target market, but that, <laughs> right. I think it comes from yeah. that. They just love it so much. And then that means everyone else has, has I know, to love it as well. But it is a brilliant song. It's really great. Well, if it has to be a song that your kids are going to listen to over <laughs> and over, at least it was a really good song. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the song itself is... is it's those four chords that are in so many songs, isn't it? There's not there's not much new about it in terms of the the chord structure. It's the you know four one five six and four. You know, but there's that wonderful but, surprise chord at the end of the chorus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know, that's just you know that's to me that was just like wow, that's really cool. How yeah. brave of them to go with that chord, but it's just so fun. You know, that's that incredible inspiration that a composer will have. Yes. It's, it's brilliant. It's it's yeah. so clever. Yeah, it is. I was going to ask you whether, so when you're looking at, so we've talked about the differences between the size of having these big film orchestras and then smaller theatre ones, do you have a kind of ideal 
size and genre that you'd be orchestrating or something you think this is the dream project? It's such a great <laughs> question. And I think because I've spent so long servicing, I guess you could say, other people's music, you know, serving other people's music, shepherding other people's music, that there is a way in which I've kind of lost sight of what is my music. You know, and I have yeah. done a little bit of composing over the last few years. And I think um, I think I'm, I'm kind of getting a little back to that, to just a, a sense of what do I like to listen to and what what would be my music. But I think the answer is kind of no. I don't, I don't know that there is one type of ensemble, you know, you have to be so adaptable as a commercial mm -hmm. arranger. It's what we do, you know, commercial, like whatever. It could be four musicians, it could be 80, you know, or 120, you know. Yeah. So there is no ideal. It's whatever you have to make it work, you know. Yeah. And I do a lot of, I do a lot of um, electronic production, you know, Pro Tools work and mock-ups, you know, MIDI mock-ups and that sort of thing. We, we say MIDI, I guess it is technically MIDI, but it's not the way it was in MIDI yeah. from the 80s and 90s. <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, and so you, obviously you have to know all that technology, but anything's possible. You know, there is no standard ensemble. It could be anything now. So. Yeah. What are the kind of instrumentations that, uh, and orchestrations that, from modern shows that are out now that, that you're really enjoying listening to? Like, because it seems to me there's a lot of, lot of string writing these days in some of the big shows like Hamilton and Dear Evan Hansen and not so much brass play. Oh, I'm a trumpet player, so yeah, it's, quite, right. it's quite sad. To, oh, I wish there was a trumpet part. On it's <laughs> nothing personal. I <laughs> no, no. But um, and there's a lot of, lot of kind of more folky things as well, things like... Um, uh, what's the one uh, about come the from come from away? Yes. Um, and the the girl from the North Country. Oh, and yeah, that, that's yeah. So there's a. It seems to be shifting a bit. There's less of that. Um, you know, I guess like the producers. I mean, it's a quite. A, it's a sort of a throwback to the, the the golden era of that big big orchestral sound. Like, but are there things that you, you're listening to when you're when you're watching shows? You go, oh, that's that's cool. I like to try and incorporate some of that into. Yeah, you know, it's it's a great. I mean, what does a Broadway show sound like now? I yeah. mean, there there was a time, I think, when Broadway had a particular sound and then you'd have like a kind of a new sound that was maybe coming up right behind it. You know, you could think back to like the late 60s and then suddenly there was Hair and Jesus Christ Superstar and, you know, Godspell off Broadway and that sort of thing. There was this kind of new, newly energized music. But, you know, at some point, like Promises, Promises in the 60s was new music. That was pop music in the theater. And now we think of it as kind of old fashioned, I mean, I suppose kids now, would, they wouldn't even know what it was. Very old fashioned sounding 60s music. So, but but there, but there, you could point to Broadway and say, that's what Broadway is in the main, but it's not one thing now anymore at all. And I think we're really in a moment of transition on Broadway where it's not clear what direction it's going. What what What's clear on Broadway right now is that producers are trying to find ways to make money on shows, to, to, make, to, to create shows that audiences will want to see and that they can earn money making. And of course, it's commercial theater and shows that make money are great for theater because it's jobs and it's, you know, it's jobs. It's theaters with, that employ hundreds of people getting to employ those people. But I think we're, we're in a moment where we're not quite sure what what is the sound of musical theater? And what's exciting to me, I always love electronics in theater and um, to hear the kind of hybrid of electronic music with live performance and those techniques, which have always fascinated me. And I've always had my hand in those techniques since the 80s when I was doing it with multi-track tape recorders and, and early sequencers. Um, 
and and write you know how you blend live instruments with that and there's different types of you know there's different assignments sometimes it's we have six people but it needs to sound like motown and it it doesn't matter what the original instrumentation was you have six make it sound like that so what what are you going to do so you just do your best you know but then there's shows where kind of you can invent something new you know i mean um Composers like Tom Kitt are writing music that doesn't necessarily fit into a genre easily, you know, so um, his orchestrators can can be bold and come up with kind of new sounds for Broadway. Those aren't necessarily always the most commercial sounds, but, you know, that's the art of theater. There's always, for every commercial pr- production or project, there's, you know, sort of a more passion project, artistic, creative, interesting, you know, not that commercial theater can't be interesting, but no. you know what I mean? For every, <laughs> for every Michael Jackson musical, which is, I, I haven't seen it or heard the one that's on Broadway, but it supposedly sounds absolutely spectacular. Oh, but really? then there's, you know, there's flying over sunset, which is, was a Tom Kitt, very avant-garde, you know, yeah. James, James Lapine, Tom Kitt musical. So interesting, right? So, yeah. You've worked extensively, extensively rather, with Bi- Barbara Streisand, haven't you? I wouldn't years. say extensively, but I have gotten to work with uh, Barbara Streisand. Was it on? To, was it a tour? So, something to do with the tour that she was? Well, doing? yeah. So here's the Barbara, my Barbara Streisand story. So there was a producer, legendary producer named Arif Marden, right? Right. And um, so back in the late '90s, when I first moved to LA. Arif was also involved in in musicals. He produced the cast album of Rent and probably others that I'm just not thinking of. And I met him when he was working on Rent and I was working on another cast album with another legendary producer, Phil Ramone. And Phil said, let me take you to meet Arif. And so I met Arif. I was in my early 30s then and I didn't realize that that, those sorts of things don't happen every day at the time (laughs) in my life. I was like, sure, this is happening to me right now. So uh, I met Arif and then he was doing, helping with demos for a musical theater project that he was involved in that I don't think ever happened. And they had some overflow work and they just needed help. So I did some mock-ups for it. And he happened to be in LA and he came to my house where I was living at the time to just finish up the mock-ups. And then he said, I'm working on this album. I could just use some help. I need to mix a little bit and put down some synths or whatever. Can you help me with this? And it turned out to be two tracks that he was producing for a Barbara Streisand album. So I helped him with that. And then he said, oh, that was great. Can you help me transcribe the guitar parts that we did, these MIDI parts that we did? Can you help me transcribe them for the plays? Sure. So I helped him do that. And then he called me and said, can you come down and conduct those two songs? <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> okay, sure, Reeve. So I went down to the studio and there's Barbara Streisand and I'm, you know, what year? I don't even know what year it was. I was not yet 35. So I was right. pretty young. Yeah. And so he, she sort of looked me, and so I was introduced to her and, you know, she's formidable in her way. And she sort of looked me over and said, well, he better be good. Um, oh, or so, something like that, you know, really. Yeah. And I, I don't mean that as in oh. any disrespectful way. Like if I no. was her, I probably would have thought the same thing. Who is this kid? And You, you might know, not I hope, said I, it out loud. I hope, well, on. you know, whatever. <laughs> maybe she didn't actually say it. Maybe she thought it, but I heard it. <laughs> um, yeah. Or maybe she did say it. We'll never know. Um, so, but then it, it went very well. The, the session went well. And, and I knew it was going well because she, she started trusting me and sort of talking to me directly. Oh, could this be a little faster? You know, whatever it was. And it went great. And so I'm on that album. And then um, I got a call a few years later, unrelated to that, to do a song for the Millennium Concert. So this was must have been a year later or so. It was 2000. And um, 
four other or three other orchestrators had done, and it was like a 40-bar piece. It wasn't even that big, but like I was the fourth orchestrator to do this section because <laughs> nobody had gotten it exactly the way she wanted it. So I said, sure, and I went down. And Marvin Hamlish was conducting, and they played through it. And she gave gave me some notes, uh, and and we went into Marvin's dressing room, and on the you know right at the rehearsal, fixed the things that she wanted, the violins to do something a little different here and there, whatever it was. And that's that ended up in the concert. And what was so thrilling about that was there were so many orchestrators that worked on that concert. And there's a booklet that came out with the CD where she thanked all the orchestrators. And my name is on that list. Oh. And I was so young at that point. I was 35. So to be thanked and to be on that list of incredible orchestrators was, I can't even still believe that it happened. Yeah. But And then I did another, uh, another, I was called in to help on another tour. And you have to realize with Barbara Streisand is it's a huge undertaking because her library is so big. Right. And um, she, you know, she, the orchestra is her rehearsal piano. So she crafts the show with the orchestra there. So there's a team of copyists and she might say, I don't know, that key's not quite right. Can we take it down? Can we take it up? Whatever it is. And they print out the music, you know, as quickly as they can and get it on the stands. Or she'll say, you know, we used to do it that way. Can we do it? Can we try something different for the bridge? And so overnight you'll have to write a new arrangement. And so it's a very big undertaking. Um, but it was always exciting working yeah. with her, and and then I, I got to I got to just conduct something for her. Um, years later, uh, she was the Grammy Cares Person of the Year for the Grammy Awards, and so they do a big concert honoring that person. And she did a twenty five minute set, and George Calandrelli, the renowned arranger, orchestrator, conductor, was supposed to do it, and he was feeling ill. And so they needed a substitute. So I was called and in three days. I learned her set and came in wow. and conducted. And it went great. She was so lovely. And, and the, or, you know, the, I mean, Arturo Sandoval was the lead yeah. driven oh player, you know, yeah, like yeah. it was just was this incredible band. And, and yeah. um, I just stayed out of the way and helped, <laughs> helped them to get through it. And it, you know, we had fun. Oh, what a gig though. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Oh. Well, I know what you want to talk about. What? Well, tell me. Wine. Oh! <laughs> I know I've had it. I'll pack I'm up while you, while you just chat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was so pleased to find that out about you, Doug, that you are a fellow, fellow WSET. Um, yes, fellow owner file. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Sommelier. Like, sommelier. Sommel- well, no, is it sommelier? The thing is, it, that is the core. That's where you're headed towards. Technically, yeah. Technically. I mean, we have a certification. I think we can say that, we can't, can't we? we? I just say I have a sommelier certification, and, and then I explain it's like a very basic one. I know. I you're more like, advanced than me. I mean, I've done, yeah, you know. Okay, right. let's you, call you, ourselves You have sommelier. one more than I do. I do. You have three, a number three, and I have a number three. Yeah, but you're about to do a new course. I but, am, um, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> it was so lovely to talk to you about wine the other I day. Know. And actually, I fully intended to be able to bring you a really lovely bottle oh, with me today, but I will track you down with some. I just got I got a bit of stage fright about buying wine. I thought I need more time. Well, let's drive Come over to the waitress in. and go and get her Come some, get a, 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 some bottles for the band. <laughs> yeah. What's your okay? What's your um, recommendation? Go on. Give give our listeners. Your recommendation. Well, oh, who knows? Well, you know. Go I, for a red. Come on, pick a red. Okay, so I love <laughs> I love Northern Rhone Syrah. Okay, so that's Lovely. that that is that's one of my favorite wines, 
And if you like Syrah and you haven't had, so every grape has, this is what you learn in sommelier school. So every grape has a place in the world where it's grown. That's considered the place where the characteristic expression of that grape is, you know, the grape comes to it, the fullness of expression in that particular place in the world. So for Syrah, the grape Syrah, it's the Northern Rhone, right? So, and they have particular hillsides in the Northern Rhone um, where it's very, the slope, you know, the hills, yeah. they, they grow these grapes and you can't even understand how they can harvest them. It's like they're hanging off a cliff harvesting yeah. <laughs> these grapes. And so there's there's one area called Cote Roti, which is the roasted slope, right? So it um, gets a lot of direct sunlight and then it's cool in the evenings. And so they just, they just grow this incredible Syrah there. And, you know, we're musicians, so we can't afford always the best <laughs> bottles. But if you ever get a Northern Rhone Syrah and there's other, you know, Cote Roti is the top, but there's other classifications from that region that are a little less expensive. San Joseph is one. And mm-hmm. so I, I really love um, Cote Roti. So that's my recommendation. There we go. And it's a good summer wine. It's a good barbecue wine. You yes. Know, good, good for good. Brilliant. Yeah. What well, my husband has up. been referring to as a session wine. <laughs> <laughs> well, session wines, like beer, it's, that would be lower alcohol. So, right. so a, a, a Cote Roti is not going to no. be low alcohol wine. Easy You're talking drunk. 14 and a half percent, something like that. It's going to be uh, yeah, up there. Yeah, this is it. All that sunlight, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. Come on. <laughs> yeah, there's going to be a lot of sugar in the grapes. And, so yeah. not a session wine. <laughs> not a session wine. If you want a session wine, you're going to go for a Riesling or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little Pinot Noir if you fancy a light Pinot red. Pinot Noir, absolutely. <laughs> Delicious. Okay, so who's off to the supermarket right now? Yeah. <laughs> Me. Um, how much is a bottle of Coat Roti? A lot. Yeah. It's a lot because you're talking small village here. Yeah, you're oh, not right. going to pick so one specific. up cheaply. <laughs> No. I mean, when Doug was talking about us going to select wine together, um, I think his idea of what he's quite willing to, to get a bottle of wine for and mine were slightly different. Yeah. Mm, <laughs> but he did buy good. some bottles for the band. Did before, he? Yeah, before him and Mark sort of left us to it, uh, they brought us some lovely English sparkling wine. So thanks, guys. Oh, so nice. You're a fan of the English sparkling wine. I'm a big fan of it. Yeah. And there's some cracking stuff near Chichester. Bolney Estate, very good. Oh, really? Mm, really mm. good, really good. Is this a good area for the sort of West Sussex? I think, so, well, Sussex in general, I know around Brighton as well. There's, oh. Yeah, it's probably something to do with the, the soil, isn't mm. it? I'm not going to get too far into this because I know it. I'll stitch myself up and nobody yeah. wants to hear it, no. do they? I no. don't know. I'm sure there's a crossover of people that lo- love wine. Do you think? Probably, yeah. Everyone likes a bit of wine. Um, Coat Roti, by the way. Uh, if any any better cool soul fans out there, mm-hmm. Coat Roti is a, quite a, a, in a quite a poignant scene oh, in, really? the, in the recent series. Of better cool soul, better cool soul fans will know what I'm talking about. Nice, it's uh, yeah, quite a pivotal moment. Um, any better cool soul fans? Uh, I am very excited about the uh, last episode. <laughs> oh, which is coming up tomorrow, right? Yeah, well, when we're recording this, it's yeah, probably, yeah, it'll be out. It'll be out now oh yeah which happened yesterday i feel like i talked about breaking bad a lot in lockdown one i watched that a lot well i watched it (laughs) a lot i watched it all (laughs) all of it (laughs) but um for the second time so uh i uh, I don't know. I don't know why I'm going down this road. Well, listen. When this ends, are you going to go back and do a third pass? I of might it? do Better Call Saul. From oh, the really? Beginning. How many series have we got of that then? Six. Woof. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm on Stranger so Things good, at though. the moment, so Ooh. 
committing to that it's brilliant that's isn't it, great well? you've got all that ahead of you yeah it's such fun um so we've got sidetracked there sorry um <laughs> we we have a patreon um if you if you love our show maybe there's some people that love it yeah if you just like it or even if you think it's quite good yeah <laughs> then um, why not uh, go to our patreon which is www.patreon.com forward slash three in a bar well done there's a link in the description of the show as well but uh for three pound fifty a month plus fat you can support the show there are also loads and loads of extra episodes with lots of our guests mm. sometimes we decided to stick it all in like we did this week actually we yeah. just we chucked it all in because uh it just works out that way yeah it? it just seemed wrong to chop any out didn't it yeah uh but we've got um you know a dozens how many how many people we had now like um 80 something we're on about 80 83 yeah. we started a bit late with the patreon but yeah but there's there's loads of extra stuff there and you support the show oh and one other thing is that yeah. of course when we do our live events that crop up every now and again um you could get yourself a free entry yeah. to it oh i shouldn't commit to that no <laughs> you can for now can. i think it's fine for now <laughs> for now if you're a patreon you get free entry no problem yeah. people who are up to this point yeah um so yeah look into that and uh helps us make the show we go we, we go around the country doing this stuff yeah um uh, we haven't been around the country we've been oh, west sussex the home county yeah. <laughs> no problem have um, you ever been outside the home counties not really no might do might venture out yeah, yeah. We, we would love to venture yeah. out more. I'm quite keen on an America tour. Don't know about you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't think if you're joining the Patreon, you're purely funding our flights to America. <laughs> but maybe. Maybe they are. <laughs> maybe you are. Um, but yeah, it's, it's uh, we, we just like doing the show. Yeah. And uh, any way to make it sustainable in our, our already kind of uh, crazy lives of... Uh, Crazy for you lives. Oh, crazy oh, for you Sorry. Lives. Oh, God. Oh, God. Um, yeah, I've been doing crazy for you last, uh, yeah, last week or so. Yeah, it's been so great. It's been really nice. Have you enjoyed it? Yeah, I loved it. Oh. It's such a fun show. Anyone that is listening who hasn't seen it yet, you live quite near Chichester, try and get a ticket. Yeah, good luck. There's not many left. Yeah. There's a few balcony seats and you can see from there, I gather. You can. Yeah. Yeah, you want to be able to see for this show, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you do. It's a spectacle, isn't it? Yeah. We're very much hoping, well, we're in chats with the lead man, Charlie Stemp, mm. um, about coming on this because he he's a genius. He's amazing. Yeah. There's not many people that, that can do all those things you can no. do. Like, he's yeah, he's a real star, isn't he? he can, oh, I mean, the, yeah. the dancing is the thing that that just really, I mean, we can see it on little screens in the pit because mm. we're, we're back behind the stage. We can't see it directly. Um, but... Yeah, it's, it's rare to see in this day and age mm. a, a leading man that can move like that. Yeah. He's like a proper old school entertainer, isn't he? What, like a like triple threat. Bruce Forsyth or something. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking like Frank Sinatra as well. well he couldn't he can tap dance like that, could he? Who, Frank oh, Sinatra? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Could. Who am I thinking? Gene Kelly. No. Gene Kelly. <laughs> Gene Kelly. Yeah, Gene Kelly. Fred Astaire. Fred Astaire. Sorry. Roy Castle. Roy Castle. Yeah, but I mean, those guys. Peter Andre, no. Okay. <laughs> he probably could do a bit of tap dancing. Oh, I bet. I bet he could. We've all, did you ever do tap dancing? No, you'd be surprised to hear I didn't no. do tap dance. I, although I really feel like I missed out. I tried ballet. I was hopeless. I'd love to have been good at that. Yeah. It's, you know, I like to freestyle dance. <laughs> you may have seen from when we went to uh, Pop World. Yeah. I like a freestyle dance. Yeah, Verity in Pop World <laughs> is something else. <laughs> she embodies the word 
energy and also the words enthusiasm. <laughs> Any other words? <laughs> and uh, the, the words arches and lemonade. <laughs> that is her only fuel. Southern comfort and lemonade, if I'm going to oh, pick bowls. Southern comfort really? and lemonade. Yes, 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 yes. If you try and get arches and lemonade. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Southern comfort and lemonade, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, great. Oh, I can still smell it now. No, you can't. That's rock pool. What you're smelling there is rock pool. Verity, <laughs> Verity picked me up from my house today to drive to Chichester. And she said, um, look, you've got to be careful here because <laughs> yeah, just I'm really sorry, but I, I stink of rock pool. <laughs> Cleaning out a fish tank. Yeah, I do. I truly do. I've changed. I've, you know, I've washed my hands thoroughly. And yet it's it's got into my pores. I do stink of rock pool, don't I? Can no. you smell it? No. It's on my nostrils. <laughs> How did you get it on you? You're getting oh your hands God. in the fish tank. Yeah, because we had to move the tank, okay? And then we had to clean all the rubble at the bottom Every of it. Every little pebble. All the pebbles. We cleaned them in a sieve. <laughs> and then we had to get the fish out and back in. And one of these fish is massive and quite terrifying to handle. I'd say dogfish size. Oh, it's an exaggeration. It's not a dogfish, but it's huge. I don't know what dogfish pretty, is in terms of size. Pretty ruddy big. We're yeah. talking about that so big. All oh, right. I've put my hands quite far apart, the size yeah. of a large... Dog. Dog. Fish. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yeah, there's a potent smell of rockfish around me. <laughs> um, I can, Honestly, I can't smell it. Good. Don't worry. Thank God. But, you know, give yourself a rinse. I will. On the on the areas you think are affected. Um, so, I would say, listeners, if you want to check out more Doug, um, he's got a website. Yeah, we'll link to that below. Watch Schmigadoon. Yeah, Schmigadoon. It's so worth it. It's, it's hilarious. really funny, really good. Uh, got some proper because, like you know, obviously Doug Doug can orchestrate anything, but yeah. he obviously has a love for that golden age of of musicals. And the first series of Schmigadoon is is set in the kind of in the style of the sort of 1950s, 60s musicals. Yeah. Oklahoma, yeah. Uh, Carousel, Rodgers and Hammerstein sort of thing. Um, so it's that kind of era. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's great fun. And then apparently the second series. Yeah. Uh, we can say this because it's on Wikipedia. Right. But the second series is called uh, Schmicago. That's it. Also, maybe we're looking at a bit of a change now. Yeah. Very good. 70s, a bit more, bit more jazzy. Yes. Uh, a bit more arty. Yeah. Maybe some song time in there. Oh, great. I'm looking forward to it. I'm going to go and watch the full series of Schmigadoon now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, and you I'm, do the same. I, okay, I will. I will. <laughs> uh, anything else to mention? I mean, Doug, yeah, go listen to, I mean, the producers. Incredible. Yeah. I was so, it was so interesting to hear about how he said Mel Brooks did it. Because I always wondered that. Because Mel Brooks is such an incredible comedian. And, yeah. And just a funny, funny guy. But. I was wondering, like, how, there's such good songs. Like, how did he write those? Because he hasn't been writing, you know, songs. Well, he has been writing songs, but 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 not. It's like he's they've he's written basically standards. Um, yeah, they could be in the American Songbook. Some of those songs. Um, so it's interesting to see how he did it, and 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 that is how through, through collaboration mm. how he came up with the 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 idea of the songs, the, the melodies, and then working with great people to yeah to put it uh, into into action. Yes, yeah, an so, incredible process, isn't it? The whole yeah, thing. It's brilliant. So, yeah, oh, you know go. what? We do have to say something else. Yeah, check out Frozen. It's a oh. brand new. <laughs> it's a new. It's been on a while in the West End, hasn't it? The, oh, I the, think the it musical has. That, but, yeah. Oh um, no, there is something we should say. Yeah, you know what? You're yeah. going to say the same thing as me. Did you look at your cup and think so. about it? 
Yeah, I did. Yeah, looking at a lovely Ooh, cup here. Do you want me to give you the, the ambient noise? <laughs> <laughs> Let me have a bit on, as well. Hang on. <laughs> um, this episode is sponsored by tea. <laughs> Listeners can tell they, they can tell it's tea, it's not coffee. Yeah, that, actually, that's true. I'd never drink coffee like that. I wouldn't <laughs> usually drink tea like that, to be honest. <laughs> um, this episode is sponsored by Chimney Fire Coffee, who are, they're based actually not far from here. Surrey Hills. Surrey Hills. Yeah. It's, it's that sort of way, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A um, bit further north than, than Chichester. Uh, they make coffee. They roast it there. They get it from all around the world. Mm. You can't really grow coffee in, in Surrey, can you? Not the moment. Not, but it's getting that way, isn't mm. it? I don't want to be maudlin, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they do. They, they do some really great ethical things. They 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 uh, provide bikes to to the places they get their coffee from, mm. and uh, they're a nice company. And, and they make uh, darn good coffee. They really do. You will uh, you will do far worse than to uh, <laughs> I don't know why I use that phrase <laughs> than to go onto their website and buy some coffee. Yes. And uh, how much percentage do you get off a bag of coffee? You get 20% off your first order <gasps> by heading to their website, entering the code three in a bar, all caps, at the checkout. Easy as that. Simple. Do it. Excellent. Well, um, I think we could do with some coffee right now, actually. Mm, for sure. We should have done that before we started. Oh, Gordon Bennett, we've got a show in an hour. Oh, my word. We need to go and get showbiz. Yeah. What was your preparation before a show? Actually, do you know, I Quick have wash. to put on, yeah, well, today, yeah, obviously get rid of the rock pools, Mel. Um, lipstick. Because even though we are remote, I need to feel show ready. Yeah. Yeah. That's something that trumpet players can't do. No. You could do some nail varnish maybe or something. Yeah. Mascara. I mm. don't know. A little bow tie. That's good. Listen, if, if you're at home or wherever you are, uh, Tell us your little pre-show things you do just to make mm. you feel a little bit more special. Maybe it's just cleaning your teeth. I, I always quite like doing that. Well, it's good, yeah. It's a good Probably idea. should do that when I play the trumpet. Yeah. But, um, yeah, little things you Have do. Have a banana. New pair of pants. Yeah. Both of those things can help with nerves. <laughs> Definitely. Also have a spare pair for the interval. <laughs> uh, we feel like we've rambled on. We, oh, we have, God, we've, we've got to go. But we've basically kept to the topic. Because we've not even really talked about anything else in our lives, but that's fine. No, we haven't. Maybe we'll do a little um, extra chat um, about about ball 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 Michael Ball <laughs> Michael Ball. <laughs> okay, what from the Patreon? Not now. Maybe, yeah, maybe yeah. from the Patreon. Oh, just, just to really ball and lure bow. people over. <laughs> so this week we'll be examining the works of Michael Ball and Alfie Bow. That's not bad as a little Patreon extra. Okay, great. It's it's a deal. Let's like do it. that. that could I've be got the a thing great story about Michael Ball, but I'll save it for the Patreon. I wonder if I'm allowed to say it. I probably am. Wow, there we go, listener. Get get involved. Come and join the Patreon. <laughs> um, right, we'll let, we'll see you. Um, we'll see you next time. We'll be back. We've got stuff mm. in the can. It's just been yeah. a bit logistically difficult. I'm actually away on holiday. Oh uh, yes. Uh, from end of August. Lovely. So maybe. We'll try and get one out before we go Let's away. see how we go. Yeah, I'm sure we can. Yeah. We'll get one to, to keep going. Mm. And uh, oh, if you're still listening, thanks. Well done. And uh, see you soon. Bye.
This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.